Hi, everybody. This is Kevin again. Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. Had some really great uh, guests on lately and uh, recorded uh, three episodes uh, at the Congress for New Urbanism in Charlotte in May, and uh, those have come out recently. Uh, this uh, this podcast will drop on the 4th of July, and uh, I just want to, I hope everybody had a chance to listen to those. They were all really, really interesting and fun conversations. <clears throat> I think the ones, uh, especially uh, with Allie uh, Quinlan and uh, John Anderson, that were very focused on a lot of uh, practical uh, tools for people who are interested in small-scale development and incremental, de- incremental development, however you'd like to call it. Uh, lots and lots of great takeaways from those. Uh, and I hope to have uh, many more guests like that uh, on the podcast. Uh, seems like uh, I get a lot of, I get a lot of feedback from folks that they really enjoy uh, those episodes and, and the stories that people have of how they came to do what they're doing. And so we'll definitely do a lot uh, more of that uh, over time. What I want to do today are a couple of things. Uh, I wanted to give a little bit of a a wrap up of some thoughts from the the latest uh, Congress for the New Urbanism uh, gathering, the which is called CNU Thirty One, and then also um, share some thoughts that that uh, I relayed uh, in a session that I did on uh, AI, on artificial intelligence, and uh, its impact on the uh, design professions uh, and the impact on cities and people who live in cities, at least as I see it. So, I'm going to break this one into two parts today. Uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy uh, this. I, and uh, as always, uh, send me some feedback, whether you agree, disagree, have comments. Uh, I enjoy hearing from people. So uh, please send me your feedback. For those of you who uh, have been around Congress for New Urbanism, uh, you, you kind of understand the lingo that I talk about here a lot. And uh, you probably know many of the personalities that I've interviewed. Uh, for those who are, who are not familiar with it, uh, I don't blame you for not being familiar with it at all. Uh, and uh, it, it's a very uh, interesting little uh, niche world uh, that uh, came to be uh, now 31 years ago and uh, originally really started by uh, architects and designers who were trying to uh, figure out uh, what, they, uh, what they could do about uh, making uh, better places uh, in, in America, uh, making more walkable uh, places, because they realized that there was a development pap- pattern happening in most of our country that they just, uh, they didn't like, uh, they didn't enjoy it. Uh, and <clears throat> they wanted to figure out how to learn from uh, the great historical places in our country and from places overseas and really try to figure out how to design and get built more places like that. And they, and the group who started that uh, has, you know, by, by every measure had incredible success with that. And a lot of the ideas that were born uh, out of the new urbanism have become mainstream uh, in uh, certainly within the planning and development professions. And uh, a number of things have also started to creep into the mainstream uh, of broader society. And, uh, you know, those, those are things just like it's, it's great to, you know, live someplace where you can walk around all the time and to use your body to, to have active transportation as it, as it's called now, where you walk and ride a bike and that doing these things and, and living in that manner is actually really enjoyable. Uh, and it's something that connects with our deep humanity that we like to get out and use our bodies to move around. And, uh, and that's a, that's a, 
wonderful part of being a human being and living in, in a city or town. So those have started to resonate. And then there are other things uh, like, uh, you know, the, the rise of the popularity of what we call accessory dwelling units or carriage houses. You know, there are a lot of items like that that were really revived uh, as part of the, the uh, conversations from the new urbanism world and the Congress for New Urbanism. And it's really cool to see how a lot of those have uh, changed over the years and, and grown and, and become more widely uh, popular. Uh, so that's really cool. And it's one reason that I, you know, I've been going to these uh, CNU conferences since 1997. Uh, CNU7 was the first one I went to in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, so I guess I've been around a little bit now. I'm, I'm not one of the founders of the organization, but probably in with what we would call a large group of people who kind of came on uh, second, sort of second generation folks uh, that were really taken by the people and the ideas and really became regulars. Um, now, if you were, if you if you know a little bit about this world and you were to say that CNU is a bit of a cult, uh, I probably wouldn't disagree. Uh, it certainly has that feel, you know, there's, there's about, uh, probably a thousand to 1500, uh, people who regularly attend these conferences every year, uh, who seem to be a core base of people, uh, that are, uh, interested, many of us getting older, getting grayer, uh, whiter, whatever you want to call it, uh, in, in our hair or losing hair. So it's, uh, it, it, it's definitely, it has that, it starts to really have that feel now, of uh, an organization that uh, is aging and um, and changing in ways that maybe many of us don't like because that's what happens when an, when uh, an organization based on a, an idea or a movement matures. And there's a lot of things that happen with, with an organization that matures. And one of those is, uh, as some of the original people who founded it start to either die off or reduce their activity, there become a lot of uh, existential questions about, uh, you know, what's the purpose? How does it evolve? Uh, does it need to evolve? Uh, uh, I've mentioned before here on the podcast, I really enjoy reading the blog um, Granola Shotgun by uh, my friend Johnny Sanfilippo. Johnny does a great job of talking about uh, that uh, everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, that's obviously true for our own lives. Uh, it's also true for organizations, for institutions, and uh, I, I would certainly have it as part of the discussion that, uh, you know, the CNU itself, maybe it's at an end. Uh, it, it had a beginning and a middle, and maybe this, it, maybe we're, maybe we're at the end with the useful life of, of that uh, organization. I don't know. Uh, I, th I think it's an open question. Uh, this year, what was particularly interesting was that it was paired with the Strong Towns uh, National Gathering, which happened uh, the day before uh, the CNU conference itself. And uh, it was fascinating to see the contrast in the energy, the makeup of the people, the topics that were discussed, et cetera. Uh, I've been a member of both organizations uh, for quite some time. I really enjoy them. I, I, I really enjoy everything going on with Strong Towns. There's clearly a younger uh, energy um, with strong towns uh, at this point in time than there is with CNU. And uh, so if CNU is to continue, I think that it, that's obviously something that has to change. An organization can't sustain itself on people my age and older. Uh, and it, we've got to really find a way to uh, uh, 
uh, train, recruit, uh, and energize the next generation, or perhaps it just uh, goes away. And it, it might it might be totally fine to say, you know, this organization had tremendous impact for a long period of time, great things. Many, many things were born of it. There's a lot of offshoot organizations that were created. Strong Towns essentially is one of those offshoot organizations from CNU. Uh, there are many others, the Incremental Development Alliance, the National Town Builders Association, the Foreign Based Code Institute, National Charette Institute, you know, um, among others um, that have all do really, really great work. Uh, but um, the CNU itself was kind of always the, the mothership uh, for all of those. And it, I guess it remains to be seen what, what happens from here. I obviously have a lot of friends and colleagues that are part of that world, many of whom you, you've probably heard on this podcast and more that you will hear. Uh, people that I really like, admire, and, and respect. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talk about these things a lot. I think those of us who've been around for 20 or 30 years or, or more really uh, ask ourselves a lot of question about, you know, what, uh, what is next, uh, or if anything is next. And, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that uh, what you see with Strong Towns is uh, Strong Towns might, might end up being uh, the successor organization to CNU. I could totally see that. Uh, I think Chuck and his team do an incredible job uh, running that organization, building that movement. And uh, I, I think one of the things that I observed, uh, again, just, you know, my own thoughts as I, as I saw the, the, read the rooms and listened to people talk and, and, and uh, visited different sessions is, you know, Strong Towns is definitely much more about the, the bottom-up uh, solutions that ordinary people uh, can do in their own communities. And it's not uh, driven by uh, professionals. Uh, so it's not driven by architects and engineers and planners necessarily, even though there are many architects, engineers, and planners who are part of Strong Towns, who love it, who support it, uh, and, and really want it to succeed. But it's a much more broad-based of movement of uh, trying to really connect with uh, just regular citizens and communities around the country. And CNU has really evolved over time to be much more of what you would probably describe as, as the opposite, sort of a top-down organization that is really driven by professionals, uh, often by big, uh, dreamy ideas and plans. Uh, the uh, professionals who are part of it now Many of them have matured to become parts of large organizations or work with large organizations, whether whether that's in the corporate world or in the governmental world. And so there is much more of the conversation and focus uh, around uh, projects and ideas and philosophies that people pursue in that world. Uh, and so uh, you hear a lot more of that dialogue at the CNU uh, than at Strong Towns, and I think Strong Towns is much, much more focused on uh, what people can do, you know, that don't have those backgrounds that maybe aren't plugged into a big system, but they still really want to improve their communities uh, or their neighborhood or their block uh, and uh, what individuals can do. So I, there's, I always say there's a place for both. Um, at this point, it's pretty easy to see that there's a lot more energy with the strong town side of thing, there's a ton of energy around incremental development and small scale development and, and people really, really wanting to learn uh, how to do, do that, how to, how to uh, take steps to do their own projects. And uh, I think that's really cool. I, 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 I especially enjoy that. I'm at a point in my life where I, I really love uh, seeing uh, people just kind of uh, 
do things, uh, and, and sometimes even without asking permission, but just, you know, going ahead and, and undertaking projects and, and, and making things happen, uh, making positive things happen, uh, without necessarily having to wait for a, a grand vision or uh, a grand plan, uh, to do it. Um, so, uh, it, it's a, it's a fascinating, th- this was a fascinating experience this year to see kind of the contrast, uh, between the two organizations. So who knows where it goes and how they evolve. Um, but this, this year really would have given somebody new, a lot of insight in, into both worlds. Um, so that's a little bit about, you know, I think CNU itself, uh, it, you know, CNU as a conference, you know, uh, of course, something called Congress for the New Urbanism is by nature kind of wonky and uh, has a bit of an ivory tower uh, sounding name to it. And the annual conference, they actually call it Congress itself. And there's reasons for that that I don't really want to bore everybody with. But, uh, you know, when when you see this group uh, get together every year, it always feels uh, a little bit more like a large think tank uh, getting together uh, than any kind of professional conference. I, you know, I'm an architect. Uh, I've done... I've been to architecture conferences, planning conferences, you know, development, et cetera, lots of things in this world. And there's just, there's an incredibly different feel between conferences geared towards uh, a a sort of a narrow segment of professionals where, you know, people are going there to get continuing education credits, to uh, talk with their colleagues, uh, to get time away from home, you know, to be frank and to go party with their friends. Uh, that's all part of, you know, the the conference circuit. Um, but the CNU has always been different because it was really, it's always been so much more about sharing knowledge, learning, and pushing each other, pushing our, our friends and colleagues to do better, to ask hard questions, to challenge uh, each other. And so when it has worked that way, I have always really, really looked forward to participating and coming back. And it's like, I guess it's why I keep going because I enjoy, I really enjoy that kind of spirit of debate and back and forth. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's less of that now, uh, than, than it used to be. And that, again, that might be the nature of, uh, an organization that's been around for 31 years. Uh, it, it's, I'm, I'm totally willing to accept the argument that uh, as a group of people um, mature, they tend to converge more on how they see the world and become more like-minded. And there's just less, um, less of the kind of debate and disagreement. And there's a lot more orthodoxy uh, than what there would have been in the beginning. And uh, I think that's probably true of all movements for change. And I certainly see that within the CNU. There's an awful lot more orthodoxy now and a lot more uh, groupthink than there would have been, you know, 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, so uh, it, it's interesting to kind of watch watch that uh, evolve uh, over time. A couple other takeaways that I just wanted to share uh, for for anybody listening. I, I, I think uh, as we as we talk about ideas on this podcast, uh, especially related to uh, small scale development as we, as relate to, to change that we can make you know, in our own communities. 
Um, two things that really come to mind, which I'll, which I'll certainly expand on probably another time and may, may bring some guests on to have a, a back and forth. But, uh, w- one thing I notice an awful lot in the, uh, the professional world, uh, and our discussions around issues is we do have this crazy tendency to, uh, focus, you know, enormous amounts of attention on the small problem. Uh, as opposed to what, you know, as opposed to focusing on the big problems. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's because we seem to be in a place right now where it's just, we've almost given up on the big problems. We feel, maybe we feel like we can't handle them. Maybe we feel like we have no solutions for them. Maybe they seem too overwhelming. Uh, so we obsess about the small problem, uh, that gets a lot of attention uh, and is probably very emotional, uh, probably very political and polarizing. Um, and in the meantime, there's this other big problem sitting off by the side that, that we ignore. And I'll give you one example. And this is, this is something that, uh, has frustrated me a lot in my own city, uh, in Kansas city here, uh, but really in most cities around the country. And that is how we tend to adopt the uh, development narratives, especially around housing that uh, are just uh, are common in maybe the, the handful of large coastal markets. Uh, and then we adopt those even, even if they don't really apply uh, very well. So for example, there's a, there's, there's a ton of discussion around housing affordability and gentrification. And uh, I, I will tell you straight up that, uh, Gentrification is a word that if you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers on what it actually means. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not entirely sure we should even be using that word uh, at all uh, in our discussions around change in cities and housing. I don't think it's very helpful. Uh, I think it's become very polarized uh, in, in terms of how people think about it. But for, for the purposes of just discussion, uh, I'll say we, fo- we focus an awful lot. You know, you can read just countless articles uh, in every newspaper, magazine, uh, anything on the built environment where people are talking about gentrification. Even here in Kansas City, you'll you'll see just, it's very easy to find uh, articles going over problems with housing affordability and gentrification. So I'm not here to say that's not a problem at all. Um, But in my city, what we really see is the issues related to housing affordability and rising costs and potentially uh, people having to move because of those happens in a very small geographic area, uh, a very narrow slice uh, of our city that probably impacts, um, you know, let's say, let's say charitably it impacts probably a dozen neighborhoods. Uh, On the other hand, we have this really, really big problem where we have very large sections of our city that have been in terminal decline for 70 years. Uh, and, uh, those are the neighborhoods that, uh, to this day, there is still lots of abandonment, uh, vacant lots, vacant houses, buildings still being torn down. Uh, and that occupies a vast swath of the geography uh, of my city. And uh, the 
to me, that's the example of that's the big problem in our city. The big problem is we have these huge areas and hundreds uh, of neighborhoods probably that are in decline and are suffering and have suffered for years and continue to suffer. Uh, high crime, terrible disinvestment, um, abandonment, and and there's a handful of those that are starting to see some investment and getting better. Um, but we, we just seem to not want to talk about that very much um, because it's just sexier and easier to focus on the handful of neighborhoods that have seen a lot of redevelopment in the last 10 or 20 years uh, where uh, costs for apartments have gone up dramatically and houses have gone up dramatically. And, um, and so we wring our hands about those. And, and yet I, I just rarely see a lot of serious discussion about the other issues. And so I, I, I just say that to, to say that it's indicative of what I see a lot in the discussion around uh, issues in our cities is we, we spend, we seem to want to spend a lot of time talking about the, the smaller problems that are, um, that, that aren't terribly common. And we just don't seem to want to spend a lot of you know, really time and energy talking about the big problems. Uh, so that's one takeaway. We'll talk about that more another time. The other thing, and since, you know, I guess this is appropriate since this is going to drop on the 4th of July today. Um, but I, I just, I always come away from the impression more and more so that there are just um, an awful lot of people uh, in our world who just, um, I, I guess if I were a therapist, <laughs> I would say you've got to find a way to get comfortable and with and love American cities uh, and towns. Um, so I have been a longtime critic of, you know, how we, what we have done to our cities and towns in the United States. Uh, a Google search could probably come up with a hundred blog posts I've written that are very critical. I have written before that I absolutely adore a lot of the cities and towns that I encounter in other countries, European countries, South American, you know, Asian, wherever I've had the opportunity to visit. Um, I've written before that um, the the cities in the Netherlands uh, are probably close to an ideal that that I would personally enjoy, and I think are amazing cities for raising children. And I feel uh, I, I wish we had a built environment that was uh, like that uh, in our country. I, I make no bones about it. I love those kind of places. Uh, and, uh, I wish that was more common, but it's not. And our cities and our culture is different in this country. And there actually is a lot of really great, uh, there, there are a lot of great things that we can focus on that are part of, uh, our culture and the way we built cities and towns, uh, in the United States. And in fact, one of the things that we, we have a ton of amnesia about, uh, not just in the planning profession, but, but, you know, throughout uh, our society is that we really did build a lot of amazing cities and towns, uh, in this country from, uh, the colonial days all the way up through the 1920s. Uh, we had remarkable, uh, uh cities that were very walkable that did have 
functioning uh, transit systems that were, by the way, privately owned and maintained. Uh, we had, you know, biking was actually a big deal in the early decades of the 20th century in, in American cities and towns. It was a very common way to get around. We had these wonderful functional neighborhoods um, with small, you know, entrepreneurs everywhere, small neighborhood grocers. You really had local economies. Uh, e even in big cities, you had local economies and neighborhoods. And we had so much of uh, so much of that already in this country. We've we've forgotten that. We've lost a lot of it. And in the <clears throat> in the rush to build the the new modern city. Um, starting really in the 1920s, but but not really kicking off in mass until after World War II. We uh, we forgot all about those traditions which we had in this country. So, you know, one one aspect of that is we actually did have you know lots of remarkable places, and it's not hard to find to go some places where you can find remnants of that uh, in, all over the country. Uh, you can see it, um, you can touch it. Uh, you, there are still places that work, you know, really well. Um, so that's one, one thing again, but the other thing is, you know, we have a different culture than, you know, almost any other country in the world. And a lot of that is based around, uh, a middle-class, uh, culture of property ownership. And, uh, it, it's very different from, from so many places. And it's a good thing. Uh, I, I will just say flat out, it's a good thing. It is, it's, it is, one of the things that has kept uh, our country strong, it creates lots of wealth for individuals and families and, and opportunity for people. And I just feel like in our discussions, especially in these conversations at conferences, we, we've got to, you know, my fellow planners and, and designers and all got to find a way to embrace that and love the nature of American cities, uh, love the nature of you know, how our cities were platted uh, into individual lots and often into single family uh, detached houses. Um, there's obviously an enormous preference for that uh, in our country. And I just don't think it does any good. Some of the language we use, which which um, is really critical of that. Uh, and and I also think it, 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 it tends to make us uh, fall into an area where people... Um, people are just not going to listen uh, because we, we, we sometimes take this tack where we come out as opposed to things that are very broadly popular with all kinds of people. And so I, I, one of the things we'll talk more about over time is I just really feel like as planners, designers, we need to align ourselves with things that are very broadly popular in our society and then just figure out how do we make the best of it? You know, how do we, what, what are the, what are the tweaks we need to make? What are the changes we need to make here and there and be comfortable with the notion of, you know, really quality American cities that are different, that are going to be different from cities in other countries. Uh, so I, I know many of you who listen are, are working every day in that world and are, are trying to make changes uh, as I am. Uh, and I think we should all continue to look for ways to make improvements and make make incremental progress. Um, but the idea that we're going to have revolutionary change in our society and all of a sudden, you know, our our cities and towns are going to look like European cities and towns, you know, it's just, it's not going to happen. And we delude ourselves by thinking it will happen. 
uh, and uh, it's not it's just not helpful. Uh, we need to find a comfort level with what we have, make it the best we can be, and learn um, learn to really love that and and appreciate that. Because I will tell you that most people outside the planning world uh, already do love and appreciate what we have in terms of how our cities are built, or they just don't even think about it very much. Uh, but uh, there's uh, there, there's a vast gulf often in the conversations we have at these conferences between what those of us in the professional world um, seem to really want and what um, what regular people in our communities really value uh, and want. So we'll talk more about that. All right, I want to pause here and just uh, thank everybody for listening and for following uh, this podcast. If you can, please take a moment to like or share the podcast with a friend. If you have the opportunity to go on whatever uh, whatever uh, platform you listen to and give a review, I'd really appreciate it. Anything that uh, goes on Apple Podcasts, for example, if you go leave a review on there, uh, it just gets uh, a broader audience and, and more potential distribution for podcasts. Also, it just helps me. Uh, understand what uh, people are enjoying or not enjoying and uh, how to how to tailor future episodes. So thanks again for listening and please uh, share the Messy City podcast with your friends and colleagues. All right, I want to take the last bit of time here to share uh, some thoughts uh, about artificial intelligence with a hot topic of the day, I guess. <laughs> uh, and uh, AI is uh, all over the news. You can't escape it. Uh, it's it's virtually everywhere. I guess that's kind of a funny way to talk about it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's it clearly uh, the next transformative technology that's going to shape our lives. And uh, within just my lifetime, uh, we have already seen a couple of these. Uh, it's remarkable to see uh, how technology has changed and how it's impacted our day-to-day lives. And uh, certainly uh, in my lifetime, uh, starting as a young kid, you know, uh, it was still the TV and radio world and TV was mostly three or four channels. So uh, I'm not that old, but it, it, it may sound like it. But um, in, in terms of technology and information, that really quickly uh, shifted. Uh, we had cable TV. We had the rise of different ways to listen to music uh, with CDs, ta- tapes, CDs, and and then ultimately digital music. And then the really big transformative technologies, uh, obviously the the rise of the internet and uh, how it became such a, a, a day-to-day factor in our lives, really starting in the 1990s uh, in a big way. Uh, and then later, uh, really kicking off at, at the end of the 2000s and into the 2010s were um, smartphones. And, and both of those have been utterly transformative in uh, the way that we interact, uh, how we live our day-to-day lives, uh, in some cases, where we live and how we live. Uh, and uh, as I look at the landscape, it, it sure seems to me like AI is the next uh, of those technologies and uh, will be just as transformative, if not more so, than um, 
smartphones uh, or even the creation of the internet. It, it's it's very remarkable. So I, you know, I started this talk off at CNU. Uh, again, I just want to share these are my observations. I uh, I am not uh, an expert <laughs> on AI. Uh, I will never claim to be an expert. Uh, I I listen to people talk about it. I play around with it a little bit. Um, I don't use it every day. Uh, I don't use chat GPT for every day. I may, uh, you know, before long. Um, but I am curious as hell as to how this is going to impact our various professions and especially how we all live in cities and towns, because every, every technological shift uh, in society has an impact on uh, work and how people make a living and then where they live and how they live in, in those places. Uh, you've seen, you can see that throughout uh, American history uh, in particular and how big technological shifts have impacted our cities. And it sure seems clear to me that AI uh, is the next one. Um, and uh, as I said, I played around with it a little bit. It's fascinating to uh, get into the technology, uh, the various uh, various versions of it that are available right now and just instantly create uh, either graphics or text or whatever. So uh, I start by saying, you know, AI, as we talk about it today, is really just a large language model. So uh, it is, it's really just about uh, being able to understand uh, language and text and manipulate it to create outcomes, uh, or at least that's the way I would describe it. And if you're really good at working with language, or if, or if you're good at writing, um, you're probably going to enjoy AI and get a lot of use out of it. Uh, and you don't have to be good at computers. That's what's interesting about it, is that uh, you don't have to have a particular knowledge of computers at all to be good at AI. So there's you know, really a lot of the first and second generation of use of computers uh, where you had to know the things to really understand how to get a lot out of it. The fascinating thing about AI is you don't. It's really just typing in uh, words and phrases and commands and asking questions and continuing to refine those to get the feedback you want. Uh, so uh, in that regard, it opens up a whole world of uh, outcomes uh, to people who may not have been very good at things. Uh, so I used one example. Uh, I showed one video uh, in the, uh, discussion, uh, or the presentation where, uh, there's a guy who, um, like, like many of these people that there are on YouTube who, who, uh, teaches people, uh, tips and tricks on Photoshop. And he was using the new, uh, plugin that Photoshop that Adobe has put in for Photoshop and having it, uh, refine an image. And in a matter of 30 seconds, he was able to get Photoshop uh, to do something that he said usually was a 30 minute tutorial uh, from, you know, from previous videos about how, how to get people to learn how to manipulate images. So what you can see with that is that uh, the, as AI gets better and better and it will get better and better, um, it's really going to dramatically increase the productivity of individuals who are trying to produce things, whether it's the written word or whether it's graphics or anything else. Uh, I also showed another example. We had this kind of fun meeting uh, at, at work where we, 
we were talking about uh, some public spaces we'd like to improve uh, in our part of the city. And we had a little uh, work group uh, put together to discuss it. And there was a woman who uh, brought in something that she created through uh, Bing, uh, the AI that Bing has, Microsoft has. And so she uh, she's not a designer, um, not an architect, uh, but she was able in just a couple of minutes to produce a board, a graphic board, uh, that is something that I would usually use as like a display board in a meeting with a series of images and options on it that looks incredibly professional that Bing produced. Uh, it's amazing. And again, somebody without the professional background of like an urban designer or something like that. And uh, now I, what I told people also is if you looked at the drawings and you tr you tried to analyze what was on there, you would realize pretty quickly that it was almost all technically wrong. <laughs> so, you know, things were drawn and drawn in places where, um, it, you know, it just, it wouldn't work. Um, there are a lot, lots and lots of flaws in the output, but I'm fully convinced that, uh, that output will just get better and better, uh, over time. And, uh, and it's going to be remarkable how, uh, how much people are going to be able to create, um, with, within just a few minutes. Uh, so I've played with some of these myself, like I said, and there's, there's a lot of different, uh, platforms right now for AI. There's a lots of, there's an awful lot of companies who are creating platforms. Uh, there are many that are specific to, uh, architecture design and development. Uh, and, uh, it's not hard to uh, do a quick Google search and find, uh, people who are, who are experienced in, in that world, who are creating companies and, uh, and, it's, you know, it's kind of become the new gold rush in Silicon Valley. Uh, and so it, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch this evolve. This is, this is obviously uh, a major technological wave. So what I wanted to talk about were just my thoughts on how it impacted, how this could impact uh, three areas uh, of life. Just one are the actual uh, professions that, that I work in. Uh, the other is how it impacts cities and towns and life in cities and towns. And the last uh, really is just uh, for individuals and what, what individuals can do about it. So uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing here today, but I do want to give a little bit of a summary of this. Uh, I'm really curious about um, feedback uh, from listeners. Um, do you think I'm out to lunch or, or do you agree on some of these? Um, I, I will tell you, uh, I have always enjoyed over the years kind of trying to take a look at the, the big picture landscape and see where things were going. Uh, and, and I think it's probably something that I've always been really, really good at. Uh, it, you know, it's become kind of a common thing to say, you know, this is my superpower. Well, I, I don't know that, you know, that's kind of a silly thing for me to say about this, but uh, I'm not, um, I'm not some soothsayer in that regard, but I don't think it's terribly hard to look at what trends are happening and imagine um, how how that change could evolve over 10 or 20 years. And that's really what I'm talking about. It's like what the impact is likely to be over the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. Uh, so when it comes to the professions, um, what you see a lot of is there's a lot of people freaking out uh, about potential job loss due to AI. And I, I'm here to say there's reason to freak out. Uh, I, I think there are 
absolutely going to be millions of jobs destroyed uh, by AI that are white collar jobs uh, that are done by people who have jobs that are kind of uh, about like checking boxes, filling out forms, routine tasks, uh, low level jobs, especially in a lot of different, different professions. Uh, within a couple of years, uh, companies are going to learn how to do those tasks uh, with, with either without humans or with a fraction of the humans that were necessary before. So one of my benchmarks in thinking about this was uh, thinking about in the world of architecture when uh, AutoCAD came along uh, and replaced manual drafting. Uh, I think this is not a, not a bad way to think about it, but uh, for, for, you know, most of the 20th century uh, drafting for buildings for drawings was all done by hand. It was done by people sitting at desks and they would, uh, you know, draw and they would erase and redraw uh, drawings. And it took a long time. Uh, it was very labor intensive. It required a certain skill set. Uh, and it was actually also really inflexible. It was kind of hard to, to redo it if mistakes were made. Well, along comes AutoCAD in the uh, 1990s. And within, you know, within a, a decade, uh, all of the hand drafting was basically gone. Uh, and what happened was uh, AutoCAD was still a process really of manual drafting. You had a person, you have a person sitting at a computer who draws on the, you know, on the computer. But now that one person could do the work of several uh, draftspeople. It was easier, faster, uh, tremendously easy to make changes. Uh, and it really improved the productivity of architecture and engineering firms. And, and now instead of you know, maybe a hundred drafts people that you needed to work on a project, you could probably do that with 10 or less, uh, people using AutoCAD. Uh, and so it's pretty amazing. Now, if you go into offices and you see uh, a major project, like think for example, like a baseball stadium or, uh, you know, an airport and to actually go see how small the team is of people that work on those projects. Um, so those might've been hundreds of people in the past, and uh, it, it's just very different today. And it's remarkable to see how productive that small team can be. And, and I think we'll see the same thing with, with AI. And uh, it, it's going to be a very similar way for a lot of people. So there's a lot of kind of rote jobs uh, that exist in middle management and entry-level uh, white-collar jobs. And I'm not to say those jobs won't exist, but all of a sudden now, it's just going to need many fewer people. It's going to be so much easier and faster with this technology. It's very plain to see. Uh, and one of the reasons I think you see a lot of freak out uh, in the news about this is because for uh, the first time, uh, this is a technology that really threatens the jobs of people in uh, fields like journalism uh, and uh, and in PR and in human resources, You know where there's a, a lot of people in those worlds uh, that now the AI will be able to produce content just as good in minutes uh, for stories that might have taken days or hours. Uh, so it's not to say those jobs won't exist, but I think there will be far fewer of them uh, over time. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that, um, how that moves ahead. But I expect you'll see so, a lot of negativity about AI because those are the areas that will be impacted. Uh, whereas previously, 
with a lot of other technological advances, it tended to be more of like the blue collar jobs that were uh, eliminated and manufacturing jobs through automation and outsourcing. And now you're going to see that start to enter the white collar world. So that that's a fascinating change. Now, it's also true, like every new technology, there will be a lot of new jobs created. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, you know, that's, that's just the nature of every major shift. There are a lot of jobs that went away and there are new ones that are created from people who know how, who need to know how to use and manipulate uh, the AI itself. So I, I'm still just generally uh, uh, of the belief that what you, what, what you have seen with previous shifts will happen with this too, that there probably won't be a net uh, job loss. It's just going to be different jobs uh, that will impact different, different people. I think it's also entirely possible that in, in my world, in, in the world of architecture and development, that there's a, a lot of, that, that the AI will learn how to produce um, uh, construction drawings. It'll certainly very quickly learn how to, how to produce uh, models for development, that uh, three-dimensional models and, and financial models that will probably revolutionize um, small-scale development. It will, it will really help those uh, entrepreneurs now have access to tools that only larger entities could afford. Uh, so I think that'll be a change, but also I could, I can see a time where, you know, you are just working with the AI and talking to it and it accesses a, a, a data pool and is able to essentially produce construction drawings, uh, for you uh, very, very quickly. Um, so, uh, th- this is a big shift. Um, and, and I think what we'll see within the professions themselves, uh, are a, an incredible amount of benefits related to generating concepts. Uh, it's going to be much easier to generate concepts. Uh, it's probably bad for architects and architect fees. It's probably bad for a lot of uh, renderers who uh, make a good living uh, drawing uh, uh, colored renderings. Uh, but it's probably going to be really good for developers, uh, for clients and, and others as, as a cost savings and time saving mechanism. Uh, it's also obviously going to revolutionize student work have no idea how, you know, how that uh, changes things. Um, but I think overall, you're going to, you probably will see a situation where there's a lot of people who have really good language skills, but not great design or drawing skills that will all of a sudden be able to produce really great uh, work, really great output. So buckle up. I think it's going to be a bumpy ride in the professions. And uh, I am not envious of anybody who will be wrestling with that uh, over the next few years. It's going to be a big, big shift. Um, in terms of the built environment and and life in cities and towns, uh, I think you just have to kind of look at uh, what's happening with those shifts that I just mentioned. And then it's not hard to extrapolate what is likely to happen uh, as a result uh, in built form. So uh, we have already seen uh, a major shift over the last few years uh, into uh, remote work uh, for a lot of people, and uh, and uh, and a really a dramatic impact on the office market, especially in really big cities. And uh, that has become habit for a lot of people. Now I'll talk more about that in a minute. There's a dark side to that too that we need to discuss. But one of the things that uh, I, I think is likely to happen. 
that office workforce uh, that used to occupy a lot of downtowns, uh, I don't think is coming back uh, ever. So we used, we had a discussion in Charlotte. I asked the question of the audience, you know, what percentage of the downtown workforce uh, in Charlotte uh, is back to the office? And somebody said it was around 70%. And, um, and, and that that's actually better than most cities, which is true. Uh, there are many, many cities that are nowhere near back to 70% of their workforce is back uh, full time. Charlotte itself is a major banking uh, center. And so it, that's, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of the banks, the big banks have uh, got their people back, but not everybody. And, you know, if you, I use this example, but if you can imagine you have a business uh, in that downtown that relied on those workers, and now you have a nearly permanent 30% reduction in the population of people who are there who are part of your customers, that is catastrophic. Uh, and uh, we are going to see rolling impacts for the next decade on what has happened with the office market in major downtowns and in suburban office parks. And that will be coupled with the fact that as, as I try to read the tea leaves, um, we're going to just need a whole lot less office space, period. Um, because I think there will be a net uh, loss of white collar jobs over the next decade or two. Uh, and so I, I would say that the era of the uh, commute to downtown for office work is over uh, and that we probably need to accept that and, and move on. And uh, this, is a, this is a major shift, just like when we shifted from a largely agricultural society to an industrial society. And then when we shifted from an industrial society to more of a knowledge and office-based society, um, all of society was, was organized around those shifts. Our, uh, our education system, our built environment, our politics, our culture was organized around those shifts. This will be a similar shift uh, that uh, has many, many impacts that, uh, you know, it's impossible to predict. Um, but what the hell, I'll predict, try to predict a few anyway. Uh, and we have a big question about, you know, how public policy will react, how culture will react. But it seems clear to me that the commute to downtown, uh, uh, especially for the office market that has been indicative of the last, let's say, uh, 70 years of American society is, is over. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not here to say that's a bad thing. In fact, one of the critiques we've had in our world of uh, planning for many years is that uh, we have this really bizarre uh, system where our downtowns are nearly all uh, highly populated from nine to five and then very quiet afterwards. They're, they're not actually neighborhoods. Um, so uh, some cities have gotten out in front of that and have really worked hard to make those areas into neighborhoods that are a much bigger blend of residential and office space and other uh, entertainment uh, and amenities that people are looking for, but a lot have have not made that shift. Uh, and it's it's pretty clear to me now that that shift for cities who didn't make it, it's going to be forced on them um, because those the office market uh, as we had it in 2019 is not coming back. Uh, so that's that's going to be a major major change 
and it's going to be a struggle probably for the next um, couple of decades uh, for for cities, especially for those larger coastal cities that have um, very strong had very strong uh, downtown office markets. It will also obviously you know impact suburban office markets uh, and. Uh, I, I think uh, we don't we don't talk about that as much, but uh, I think you can look for a time when uh, a lot of those suburban office complexes will probably just be permanently abandoned and torn down. In fact, you may see that in major downtown areas as well. We we, we can't. It, it's it sounds crazy right now to, to think you know that a fifty story office tower in a major city might just be torn down and not. Uh, replaced, or maybe it's replaced with a five-story building. That seems unfathomable uh, to to anybody today. But just imagine if you were in Detroit in 1950, and you pointed to, you know, this factory or that factory, and you said, you know, in 50 years, those are going to be gone. Um, just and the neighborhoods around them decimated and abandoned. Uh, people would have thought you were insane uh, to say that. And yet that happened. And it happened in cities all over the country that had major manufacturing and in industrial bases. So with automation and outsourcing uh, really changed the entire, not just the economy, but the built landscape as well. And so I, I firmly believe you'll see that as we shift away from uh, the 20th century office uh, market. Uh, I think it's, you know, also interesting to think about how this impacts other, uh, areas of, uh, of business and economy for the last 20 or 30 years, most cities have pursued an economic development policy around what is called EDS and meds. Uh, so that's really higher education and, uh, biomedical and hospital systems. Uh, it's also pretty clear that AI uh, has a potential to have a major disruptive effect on those industries. Uh, and they're already going undergoing a lot of change. Higher education, I think enrollment peaked around, already around 2014 or 2015. It's been in decline ever since. Uh, a lot of higher education is shifting to uh, online methods or other approaches. <clears throat> and healthcare is also changing. And, and certainly one thing that that happened uh, during uh, the COVID uh, era was people learned that they could do remote um, remote doctor's appointments in healthcare. And uh, I, I certainly expect that will become more popular uh, over time. And, and, and so I would just give an editorial that I think, um, I think the era of eds and meds is also done. Uh, and not to say, again, I'm not saying those are going to go away, but as a major force for economic development in cities, uh, I think that era is probably over. Um, so there's also interesting flip sides to think about. And, uh, you know, with every good thing, there are bad things or with every technology, there's a good side and a bad side. And there's a lot of different reactions to it. Uh, also, you know, one area is, you know, we, we, we wring our hands a lot today about how invasive technology is in our lives and how much, how attached we are to our phones. Now just imagine uh, what will happen uh, with this new technology and AI will absolutely be integrated in every aspect of computer technology at some point. 
that that's just a matter of time. And so I think what we'll see is uh, technology in general is going to be even more invasive in our lives than what it is today. And so what's the reaction to that? What's the psychological reaction? Well, I think most people will just go go along with it and it just becomes part of your life and you do you do what you do. But there's probably also a certain segment uh, that just decides they want to opt out of technology altogether. There has, in fact, been the rise of what's called the homesteading movement the last few years, especially a lot of young people, uh, younger people even going out to rural areas and, and teaming up with farmers who are wanting to retire and kind of learning the lifestyle and, and, and creating intentional communities. Uh, I, I absolutely believe we could see more of that over time, that there are just, you know, a certain percentage of people who want nothing to do with uh, a lifestyle where you're so connected into technology. It'll be a niche, it'll be small, but uh, I could see certainly see that happening and the impacts of that for rural America are pretty fascinating to think about. And the other thing is, you know, with, with all technology, there's, there's a tug of war. There is always a tug of war between um, the elements of society that really want power and wealth and dominance and the elements in society that want decentralization and maximum freedom to do what they want to do. And technology in general has had a tendency to just create more centralization, more wealth in the hands of fewer people. Uh, if you look at it over, uh, over time, you certainly have seen that. Uh, that's one of the issues we wrestle with today with the internet, you know, the internet, which was created to be thought to be this great decentralizing mechanism. And now is almost entirely controlled by like five companies. Uh, and, uh, it, It'll be interesting again with AI to see what happens and and how that progresses because I believe there will be a tug of war uh, between those forces like there there always is. So, lastly, what does it mean for individuals? You know, a lot of this depends. You know, where you are in your age, what your career. I think for a lot of people who are probably older than me, um, you know, if you're on the back end of your career, maybe it won't impact you that much. You know, you can probably take what you're doing and find a way to write it, uh, write it out to retirement. You might play with it. You might have fun with it, <clears throat> but it's not going to have a major impact. If you're a younger person, you know, uh, get in, get in the platforms and start playing with it now and be an expert, learn it, learn how to manipulate it, get out ahead of the technology. Uh, also, uh, like I said in the session, um, <clears throat> I remember in, at some point in 2020, when everybody was really excited about the work from home phenomenon. I, I did, uh, uh, I think I tweeted this at one point. I'm just like, be careful what you wish for. Uh, that if you, <clears throat> if you're in a job where, uh, you don't need to be present, uh, if you, that you don't need to interact with humans, uh, to do your job, that there's probably a chance technology can displace your job. So, my advice to especially anybody younger, uh, get your butt to the office, make yourself essential, make yourself not replaceable, get to know everybody, you know, network with people. And uh, if you don't do that, uh, I think this technology uh, could be a very rude uh, awakening. I think it's also a, a, just a great time to ask yourself how resilient is your own life? What are your life skills? Um, I think they're uh, are a lot of interesting aspects to think about with this. It's very possible that the, the, I would say very likely that the sort of things that humans can do and are necessary to do will become more valuable 
um, because we'll have a better technology to do the things that uh, computers are good at uh, and do. And so uh, anything that is done uh, with your hands, uh, <clears throat> anything related to construction, you know, building things, growing things, fixing things, um, those should become more valuable. Uh, cooking, you know, all those sorts of things that are just really difficult to replace with uh, automation or computers or robots, I think, uh, uh, is a is a good, it's a good time to think about what skill of that world you have, what you would like to have, uh, and how you can make yourself uh, valuable. So lastly, I would just say, um, not all this is going to happen immediately. Uh, the technology revolution that the internet created really started in the 1990s, but, um, you know, it, it didn't really have deeper impacts on society until about 20 years later. And, you know, I think Facebook was created in around 2007 or so. Uh, it probably didn't become ubiquitous for almost another decade. Now, AI is going to move faster uh, because it's, it is a machine learning tool. It's going to, it's going to learn and get there quicker. Uh, but there's still aspects of this that probably won't affect a lot of people for another decade. Um, but I do think, especially if you're a younger person, it's wise to get out in front of it and be as knowledgeable as you can be. Don't be afraid of it. Become a master of the of the technology or become uh, resilient in other ways that just uh, make you more valuable and perhaps make make your life more enjoyable anyway. So... That's a few thoughts about AI. There's obviously a lot more. We could probably spend hours talking about it. And, and maybe I'll have a guest on at some point who is deeply knowledgeable about the subject. Uh, but those were some thoughts I had from a more generalist perspective and looking at uh, how this technology might uh, impact our futures. That's all for today. I hope everybody has a great 4th of July holiday. Thanks for listening to The Messy City. Take care. the friend